Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Project Research from the University of Alabama. My name is Joshua Peterson. I'm a sophomore from Mequon, Wisconsin, and a student in the College of Engineering. My name is Kaylin Robinson. I'm a freshman from Kansas City, uh, Missouri, and then I'm a student in the College of Arts and Sciences. Our guest today is Eric Peterson, a professor of, hist of history of science at the University of Alabama. Eric researches and publishes on topics such as the history of science, race, eugenics, and the realm of science and popular culture. So, Eric, if you want to go into a little bit more detail about uh, who you are and what you do at the university. I don't know who I am. Thank you guys so much for <laughs> – now you're going to have to edit that out. Thank you guys so much for uh, talking to me. Um, I'm not related to Joshua, even though we have the same last name. It's, uh, what, it's a very common last name, I guess. Yeah, or something. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm an associate professor of history of science and medicine at University of Alabama. And um, actually, it's kind of an unusual position. Um, history of science and medicine is usually split. So you usually either have somebody working on just the science part or just the medicine part. And usually, if you're at a university with a medical school, you just have somebody that works on history of medicine and they're in the medical school. And then usually a historian of science would be like in a physics department, not in the history department. So um, it's kind of cool the way that we do it at UA. And then the fact that I actually get to talk to freshmen and sophomores in a survey class, that's practically unheard of in the United States. Um, so it's actually a really neat position that, that we have where um, I get to, you know, speak with students who are just coming straight out of high school. I mean, I have I, ta I teach upper-level students too, but at most universities that have anybody that does what I do, they only teach upper-level students. So you don't get a chance to interact with people who are outside of your particular field. So that's my that's my um, teaching position. Um, as far as research goes, obviously we are a research university, so. Um, most faculty, about half of our lives, sometimes more, goes into research, which none of our students know anything about. <laughs> Just lost down the vanishing hole of <laughs> five people in the world care what we work on. And um, and I do, as Joshua said, work on some general history of science stuff, but mostly what I work on is um, the history of genetics, evolutionary biology, and then how those ideas fed into race science in the 19th century, really all the way till now, which is why I do my own podcast with two anthropologists called Speaking of Race. And we do a lot of historical stuff, but we also look at how all these issues still play out in the 21st century. Was that an okay answer? <laughs> yes, that was good. Um, yeah, I was just really interested in your research because I'm um, a history major, but I'm on the pre-med track, so I felt like I don't really see a lot of people who, like, choose, like, both of those things put together. Everyone thinks it's really interesting, so I thought it was interesting that you kind of had the same two interests. Um, but what is your favorite thing that you have ever researched? Hmm. Wow, I didn't think I was going to ask that. Let's see. <laughs> The favorite thing that I've ever researched. So um, there's a bunch of different ways to answer that question. So I was originally trained in the sciences, and my first graduate degrees were in sciences. 
Um, I wanted to be a, a veterinarian until I actually got to help in a surgery on a cat as a vet tech, and I passed out. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and then in the vet, who was about I'm I'm six two two thirty five, and I used to play linebacker. The vet was about five six and about a hundred and fifty pounds, and he couldn't actually get me up off the floor. And he had to like step over me during the surgery. And at the end, when I finally kind of came to, he was like, "You know, son, you might want to choose a different field." <laughs> so that is why I don't work in medicine because apparently I'm I can't stand the sight of blood. Um, but what I love to research is stuff where there's lots of blood, which I know it's like a, what I must be like a psycho or something, but um, no, I actually love how messed up the history of biology and medicine is. We teach it as if it was this clean story where every discovery logically follows from the one right before it. And when there aren't any blind alleys or total mishaps, and what I love to study is the stuff that we don't teach in a biology classroom or in a medical classroom. Um, the stuff that is the mistakes and uh, the discarded science and medicine. Um, and it's, what's interesting is that so often in biology and medicine, which in this way it's different than physics and chemistry, we see that oftentimes ideas that we thought were entirely wrong and were discarded later on, sometimes whole centuries later, we come back and say, oh, wait, actually... <laughs> Actually, it turns out that the ideas that we thought were wrong turned out to be somewhat right. So in the life sciences, anyway, old ideas recycle all the time. But scientists and physicians are not trained to look at those recurring ideas. And so they, they think that they've just discovered something brand new, when in, sometimes it's something that might be 50 years old, even a hundred years old and they have no idea. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that I really, really love. I love finding an idea that everyone's like, Oh, that's a brand new idea. And you find out, no, actually that idea is 80 years old and they've known about it for a long time. But then people basically just kind of ignored it. <laughs> Especially oh, when uh, it's, it's very interesting what you're talking about. Um, how do you usually go about finding um, all of this old information? So the the, the stock in trade, if if um, if like biologists have laboratories where you run the same set of experiments over and over and over again and try to get average stuff, historians deal in anomalies, not averages, and we find that evidence in archives primarily. In the case of history of science and medicine, we sometimes have published stuff that we investigate, articles that have been long forgotten. But the best stuff usually exists only in archives. So for my first book, one of the things I was really interested in was looking at the way that scientists spoke to each other. So I was reading their letters to one another. And one of the cool things was sometimes people who seemed completely unrelated to each other, one maybe worked on mathematics and another one was a biologist and another one was a philosopher or something. They were all kind of interested in different facets of the same exact idea. And if you followed their published work, you would see that they all had basically the same idea, 
they were just in three different fields. And in each of their fields, everybody's like, wow, that's a really neat idea that no one's ever thought of before. But meanwhile, when you're reading their letters, you realize, oh, they're actually getting these ideas from each other. They're just bouncing the same ideas off of each other, but they're people from different fields. So it seems like what they're doing is novel when it's really kind of like a group effort. And I think, interestingly, that that's the way that science happens most of the time and has for most of history, that, you know, essentially ideas are generated collectively, but we tend to just credit, like, the big-named person. So we, you know, we hold up the name of uh, Isaac Newton or uh, Nikolai Copernicus or uh, a Charles Darwin or something like that. But for the most part, their ideas were thought of by lots of people, and many people toss these ideas back and forth. We just give credit to the one big-named person, and there's lots of reasons why that might be. But um, it's the archive where we get a lot of this information from, and we find out that things that we thought were unique were really shared, and things that we thought were lost were really still circulating. They just weren't being published, or they weren't being done in a laboratory. And things that sound like they might come from some other field, like very often they do. So you think of the ideas of evolution coming from biology, but they were kind of already circulating in economics and in philosophy like long before they ever made them into, into biological ideas. That's really cool. I really, that's cool how, like, um, they're all, like, connected because I never really, like, thought of it that way. That's something, like, with, I guess, economics could have been, like, tied into something with biology. Um, but kind of, like, going off of that, what is, like, the background and kind of inspiration behind the current research that you're doing? So um, the book that I'm writing right now is about the eugenics movement in the United States, and I'm really trying to ask the question, why is it? that eugenics first happened in the United States. The reason why that's a weird question is because the person who coined the word eugenics is a man named Francis Galton, who is actually the cousin of Charles Darwin. So he's British, and he's, a, he's a, related to a Darwin. So you'd think that these ideas belong to the British, and that it would be the British that would start the world's first eugenics program. Just um, just for definitions, eugenics could mean a number of different things, but the shortest definition is it's the attempt of some people to keep other people from breeding. So it's one group's basic, it's one group basically saying um, we don't think that these other people should be allowed to have babies. <laughs> and the United States was the first country that actually did that, at least in large numbers. The question is why? Why is it the United States? So um, what motivated this project for me is I've, I've studied this stuff for years, and there's tons of books written about eugenics and how that moved from the United States to Nazi Germany, where it became the Holocaust. And then some people write about eugenics in France or in Italy or in Sweden or in Brazil or in Japan and China. But for the most part, the story goes, the British thought of it, then the Americans did it, and then the Germans got it from the Americans, and then the Holocaust happened, and it was so bad and so terrible that everybody said, oh, eugenics is really bad, we should never do it. But the, the true story is really a great deal more complicated than that, 
and I have books sitting on my shelves right now that are talking about eugenics well into the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, talking about how we should continue to sterilize people who are alcoholics or drug addicts or just people that we don't like and that have a lot of babies. <laughs> we should figure out how to make them stop breeding. But no, none of the stories tell that story that eugenics continues in the United States after we already knew what the Nazis were doing and the Holocaust was over. And so the question became, wait a second, why don't we tell that story? Why don't we talk about the fact that eugenics continued in the United States even after it stopped elsewhere in the world? And then the question from reading that stuff became, well, why did it start in the United States to begin with? We think of, you know, land of the free, and yet it was in the United States where some people said, we really don't want you to have the freedom to choose who you want to marry or to have children. In fact, one of the most scandalous things that I learned that kind of inspired the writing of this book was that it wasn't until 1981 that it came out. I mean, that's like really, really recently that it came out that very many, a huge percentage of the women in Puerto Rico learned that they had been involuntarily sterilized after Puerto Rico became a territory that was governed by the United States. So over the 20th century, women in Puerto Rico were being sterilized and they didn't know it. They weren't institutionalized. They had committed no crimes, but physicians from the mainland of the United States were going to Puerto Rico and just deciding to sterilize some of these women. Um, that's a story that we just do not talk about in the United States at all. And that made me think, is there something weird about America that leads us to do this when so many other countries, even ones that have practiced eugenics in the past, like Germany, just don't do this anymore, would see it as totally immoral. But like, why do we still do it? So it's kind of dark. Sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to be like Debbie Downer. But that is, um, yeah, that is the inspiration for this current work. It's uh, everything you're saying is very heavy. Um, I know, what, right? And and you've already kind of touched on this. Uh, my question is going to be about motivation. But what what kind of what kind of impact do you see yourself having on the students you teach and on society in general? Um, so I'll start by saying I don't I don't know that I'll ever have any impact on society in general, um, nor do I think that can actually be a goal. At least not of just a regular professor at a regular university. But um, you know, I was a I was a really bad student. Well, I wasn't really bad, but I was a bad student in high school and my first three years of college. And then my junior year, I turned 21, and my father died a few weeks later. And suddenly, um, my father and I were not close, but I just was hit with this whole, like, what do you want the rest of your life to be about type of a thing. And and I really realized, like, I needed to get serious, not necessarily about just studying, but, like, trying to figure out, like, what I was, like, who, who I should be, like, that kind of stuff that I know that people do spend their time thinking about that, but, like, I never really had. It wasn't until my dad died, and I thought, okay, well, I now have to be an adult. 
and think about those sorts of things that I began to just ask questions about a lot of the stuff that I was learning in school or didn't learn in school because I didn't bother to learn it <laughs> and, and just started making that the focus of a lot of stuff. Um, you know, trying to figure out, well, what's like, why does society seem so messed up sometimes? And why is it that we take so many things for granted, even, you know, the lives of our parents or whatever, that we really shouldn't take for granted. And why is it that we're sleeping? I mean, that's a, a weird metaphor, but why do we walk around like half asleep half the time, never really thinking about why we do any of the things that we do, just kind of going through the motions. And the only place that I know where you can ask those sorts of questions on a regular basis is in academia, or I guess you could be a pastor or a priest or something like that, which I don't think I'd be a very good version of that. I'm too, like, scattered and all over the place. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I mean, I, I worked, uh, like, a regular job for about five years, and after about five years, I ran into a friend of mine, and he said, you seem like you're really unhappy. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I have this – deep desire to try to like figure out what my life is supposed to be about other than just showing up to work on a daily basis and making some money. And he was like, you know, you ask the sorts of questions that you can only ask in a university. So you probably should go back to school. And it was weirdly enough. I was in the middle of a contract negotiation with another business to try to sell them something as part of my job. And while, while sitting outside of a boardroom, there was a magazine on a table. It was Wired Magazine, which still exists, and it was an article about eugenics. And, like, I hadn't heard anything about eugenics before. I mean, I, I heard the word. I knew that it was bad, but that's all that I knew. And I read it, and it was basically very favorable, and it said that, like, we're going to have eugenics in the future, and we should get used to it, and it's not going to be bad like it was with the Nazis. And I started asking people that I knew, hey, what do you know about eugenics? And they just looked at me funny. They're like, what are you talking about? Go back to work. <laughs> Stop asking stupid questions. And I realized more and more that this is the kind of stuff that I wanted to study. I wanted to figure out, A, why is it that people have, have done these awful things to other people? And B, why do we cover up the story? Why don't we talk about it ever? And that just asking those sorts of questions just drove me back into being an academic. And if there is one thing that I want my students to pick up from my courses, it's that same wonder about, A, why do we do what we do? And, B, why is it that we cover up the stories? Why is it that we stop telling the stories of the fact that we did these things, good or bad? So that's what I hope students get out of my classes. I don't really expect anyone to remember details about the history of science in 10 years or 20 years, but I do want them to have that kind of attitude about not taking things for granted about the world around them. So that's a really long answer to a good question. <laughs> um, going off of that, I know that you talked about how, like, finding like your path to becoming like a researcher wasn't like a smooth sailing path 
what advice do you have to students who might want to go into research or might not want to know what they do, might not know what they want to do yet and are still trying to figure it out? I think that we assume that at some point in our lives, there's just going to be this moment of clarity and we're going to know what we're supposed to do next. And then we're going to choose to do that thing. And we assume that's going to happen to us in the four years of college or maybe in graduate school after that, or if we go to law school or med school, that at some moment, God or angels or Vishnu or the Keebler elves are going to say to us, this is what you should do with your life. And that's just not the way that it is. You figure out what you want to do with your life as you are doing things. So those people who might be interested in learning more about the world should fixate on the stuff that gets them up in the morning and just do that thing. And eventually one day they'll turn around and they will say, oh, I guess this is what I was supposed to be doing <laughs> my whole life. In other words, chase after the things that motivate you. And eventually the thing that you're supposed to do will become clear because you've already been doing it. There are very old proverbs in religious sources, but not necessarily religious sources that say that you are daily becoming the thing that you will always be. Every single day that goes by is an opportunity to study or learn or be curious about the world. But mostly what we do is we sleepwalk through the world and then we crash on our couches and turn on some Netflix or some Hulu at the end of the day or YouTube or just text with people or get on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. And we never stop and ask ourselves, is this a good thing to be investing in? Like, is this really what motivates me? Do I really want to do this or be this kind of person for the rest of my life? Cause you only get one of those, I think. And they go by pretty quickly, but we spend most of our time again, like half asleep and like not really doing things that we like to do anyway. So if you want to research something, if you think that you want to be a researcher, go find the thing that makes you excited and just research that. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you can actually get paid to do that. <laughs> I mean, that's the trick is to actually get somebody to give you money to research the thing that you love. But I got to tell you, I, I mean, I was in the corporate world for a while after college and there is no one in the corporate world anyway, who's going to invest in your curiosity you have to do that on your own. If you're lucky, the the thing you get paid to do and the thing that you love to do will line up. But you're going to have to choose. Do you really want to do the thing that you love or do you want to do the thing that's going to pay you a lot? Because most of the time you don't get to have both. I mean this to be encouraging, to tell people not to worry about how they're going to get paid to just do the stuff that you love. But I swear every time I say things like this, people get discouraged because ultimately what they're worried about is, you know, making money and being an influential person. And they're not that worried about chasing the things that they're curious about. And that's kind of sad because that is, as a society, I suspect, that we value certain things like 
you know, making money and becoming an accomplished person in your career a lot more than we value you getting to discover something about the world before you die. I didn't mean to just turn into like a philosopher right there. But that's just, that's just no, that was really good. Well, on the, on the topic of um, doing what you love for your job, I noticed you teach uh, a course called A Global History of Gaming. Yes. Um, would you would you like to talk about uh, what that is and how you got into that? Yeah, so I'm a geek, if you haven't already figured that out. And um, I really, really love games. I love board games. I love video games. I love sports. But, you know, just things that people do to play. Uh, I do not think that those are just distractions, the way that sometimes social media or, you know, watching TV is a kind of a distraction. I think that games are the opposite of that. They are sometimes when we are most human, when we're doing that thing that is like the most us. And it's what's crazy to me is that in as much as I love this stuff in my own life, I started to notice that many societies around the world have their own sorts of games and have had them for thousands of years. And that was fascinating to me that, you know, we talk about history as a thing about ideas and, you know, like rulers and, um, I don't know, like written stuff. But what we don't often do is talk about how every society on earth, as far back as we go, also had their own games. So what I wanted to do was try to introduce students to these long forgotten games and then see how those play into the games that people play nowadays. So it was really, I hate to tell you this, but it was really an excuse to bring my own board game collection into a class and force students to play. <laughs> but we did, we started with super ancient games, uh, Mancala and Senet and the game of Ur, which was found in an archaeological site, but probably is between three and 4,000 years old. And um, we played those in class. We talked about the origins of things like Go and chess. And then we worked our way up to like modern day board games, which can be, if you're not familiar with it, extremely complicated or extremely easy. Um, we talked about the true origins of Monopoly, which ironically are exactly the opposite of the game Monopoly. <laughs> it was an anti-Monopoly crusader that invented the game Monopoly to teach about how bad Monopolies are. Um, anyway, it's, I think, a way to tap into not only how we have fun and think and get outside of ourselves, but also how other people around the world for all of human history and in every culture have done the same thing. Like by playing games, weirdly, we're doing something that is fundamentally human in a really, really cool way. So that's what I love about that class. You you suddenly see like things that people valued hundreds and even thousands of years ago just from their board games when you play their board games. It's pretty cool. And it gives me an excuse to just play board games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, this is the last question that we have, and then we'll be done. But um, how has COVID impacted your research? Ooh. I mean, um, I just spent a minute talking about how important archives are and how you have to get down into these things that aren't published, like letters or lab reports to figure out what was going on behind the scenes in the history of science. 
not being able to go to archives makes that impossible. <laughs> you just can't do any research at all. Um, the happy accident that happened from that is that, um, and, and it really was an accident, and I guess it was happy, was that um, as soon as I learned about this, you know, strange thing that was coming out of China in January of 2020, I just started taking notes on how it was moving around China and what the Chinese government was doing to address it. Part of the reason is because I teach a course on the history of epidemics. And I thought, oh, man, the next time that I teach my course on the history of, of epidemics, I should probably talk about whatever this disease is that's going around China in January of 2020. And it seemed like the Chinese government had it under control, like they had really stiff lockdowns. And I thought, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be neat if we studied you know, this historical stuff, and then I had all these documents that came from this outbreak of some mysterious illness in China. <laughs> Little did I know <laughs> that it was just going to keep going and going and going and going. Um, so I kept up with a journal uh, basically all of last year, and I found out there was a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Margaret Peacock, also here at the University of Alabama, who studies the history of propaganda. And she, too, was following um, how governments were um, basically reporting the stuff that was happening with the disease inside of their borders, whether it was China or Italy or Spain, and then eventually by March, the United States. So in the, I guess this would have been maybe April, the two of us discovered on a Zoom call uh, by accident that we had both been doing this. And we ended up combining our journaling efforts all the way through 2020. And as stuff got really, really wild over the summer and into the fall and through election season, and then we kept journaling all the way through the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And we turned that into a book and it will be coming out next year. So that's not technically part of what I really researched, but what's interesting is that the historical, um, just the way that historians read a lot really fast and try to connect stuff that's going on in the present and the stuff that ha has happened already in the past, we were able to use that methodology that historians always use to kind of talk about why the pandemic in 2020 turned out the way that it did in the United States, given American history given the history of healthcare in the United States, given the history of race in the United States, um, given the history of economics in the United States. Uh, we did things like travel to Lowndes County, Alabama, one of the poorest places in the entire country, to try to see how COVID was going on there. And then once the vaccine started being rolled out at the end of 2020, like how that was working, how the Alabama Department of Public Health was able to or unable to uh, begin to vaccinate people in some of the poorest parts of the country. So that wasn't necessarily part of my original research, but now not only is it a book, but we're turning it into a digital humanities source so that future students next year and the year after that and the year after that and hopefully 10 years from now and 20 years from now can go back and say, why did 2020 turn out the way that it did? Um, what are like what are some original resources from the year 2020 
So maybe when my kids are old or my grandkids, right, they can look back at this past year and kind of get a firsthand look at what happened, not just read about it in history books, but actually read the day-by-day account of here's what happened in 2020. So, um, so yeah, that was, again, it was an accident. I did not plan that, uh, but it's pretty cool to be able to use some of the techniques that are typically used in history, like right as it's happening and write a history of medicine in real time. So that was cool. Awesome. That's actually really cool that you're doing research on that. It's really interesting. Um, that's the last question that we have for you today, but we just want to uh, thank you for doing this for us and for taking your time out of your day to do this. Um, all of your research is really interesting, so it was really nice to hear like a lot more about it in more detail. Thank you, guys. It was really generous of you to reach out, and I'm sorry my answers get really long-winded. Edit them down. <laughs> <laughs>